brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. We have a guest speaker today. If you've been coming to Sunday nights, you know him well. He is all the way from Malawi, Africa. Uh, Grace Missions International has sent him out. Brian Biedbach has come to share the word with us. Will you welcome him? Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 14. We'll be looking this morning at Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. Please follow along with your, in your Bibles with me as I read Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up in the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for this time together where we come to your word. We pray, Lord, humbly that you would speak to us. You have been so gracious to us, Lord, in many ways. And we thank you right now for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his perfect life, his sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And as we come to your word, Lord, we ask that you would teach us how we might glorify you more might know you better, and might uh, follow in Christ's steps. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of this morning's message is The Changing Face of Missions. And I chose this passage because I think it will help us to ground ourselves in really the mission of the church. I think if you were to walk into um, uh, any church... Uh, often, it's one time or another, if it's a church that has any kind of missions program at all, they'll have a bulletin board as you walk in and it's got a map of the world. And if it's a church in America, usually America's right in the middle of the map. I'm not sure why exactly they do that. I think uh, there, there are other nations that are ethnocentric. Uh, if, you, if you go to Europe, you'll see the Europe's right in the middle. And you go to China, China's right in the middle. Wherever the map is printed, they say we're going to be right in the middle. And... The church that has this big map, they'll put a pin in the city where they are at, like a big pin. And then they put little pins in cities where people that they support in missionary work are all over the world. And they'll usually have pictures of those missionaries all over. Have you seen these things? And they have yarn or string going from the big pin all the way to all the other pins all the way around the world. And above the map is a big sign that says... Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and it says, go into the world and make disciples. You've seen these, right? Now, 50 years ago, those pictures of those missionaries primarily were pictures of missionaries who were doing church planting, Bible teaching, uh, baptism, uh, church strengthening. They were involved in the proclamation ministry of the gospel. Today, we've seen a shift, and in many churches, you'll see much more of a balance. There will be those who may still be involved in proclamation, but there will be those who are involved in orphan care and street children and all kinds of acts of mercy, medical missionaries, and you'll see a a diversity, which I think is fine and I think it's good. I think it's a sign that missions is making progress in the world, and so there are some missionaries who are going out and assisting Churches that are already strong and healthy. 
But at the same time, I think that there's a danger. And the danger is that a church could have a missions program where nobody is doing the proclamation ministry and all of their missionaries are involved in social action. I think we're seeing a changing face of missions where the pendulum is swinging and could kill missions, kill worship, and expand liberalism and not the gospel. Don't get me wrong. I'm not against social action. I think social action is wonderful. I was involved in a church in Johannesburg, South Africa for eight years. I was pastoring the church and a group of ladies from our church had a, a, opened a, a series of homes called Lombano Homes for Abandoned HIV Babies. I was, on, I was the chairman of the board. I love to see people around the world taking care of physical needs and spiritual needs, but I think it's, it's necessary. Right now, the church that I'm pastoring in Malawi, which is in Central Africa, has a ministry in a local prison. Uh, and I just got a report from them of what they're doing. They handed out bars of soap to prisoners. And uh, they go there and they, they proclaim the gospel. And uh, th- this one particular uh, uh, Maula prison is the name of it. It's in Lilongwe. And they have um, uh, cells that are built for 80 people. And they have one bathroom for that cell. And they're in there from like 8 o'clock at night until uh, or 3 o'clock in the afternoon until 8 o'clock the next morning. And now they're so overcrowded that they have more than 200 guys in, the, in that one cell. And so they're sleeping on the ground, shoulder to shoulder and head to head and toe to toe. It's really quite a, a, appalling. It's amazing. You could understand why soap would be such a great gift. And that's meeting to their physical needs. And I think that there's a place for that. My concern is that if we have a changing face of missions and if mission shifts all the way over to social action, that it's going to have detrimental ramifications on the church. And we've seen, especially in the last 10 years, there's been confusion really over what is the mission of the church. We have churches that use the term missional to describe what they are. There are other churches that use it to describe missio deo. And so we have many different ways... um, Uh, that that missions is defined and it's the term mission or missionary has become so broad that now it often seems impossible to know with certainty what somebody means when they speak about with missions. Somebody says, I'm a missionary. And what do you mean by that? In fact, a South African young man who uh, was attending our church in South Africa had come to Christ in that church, was growing in the Lord. He came to me one time and he said, pastor, he said, can you tell me what a missionary is? And at first I thought, this is going to be an easy question. But I said, why why do you ask? And he said, well, because I've met people all over South Africa who call themselves missionaries, and I can't figure out what they all have in common. His confusion is understandable because I think there is much confusion about what the mission of the church is. If you were to ask someone in the church today, what is the mission of the church? Someone might stand up and say, well, the mission of the church is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And they would be quoting the Westminster Confession of Faith and they would have some really good points. It would be hard to argue that someone else might stand up and say, well, I believe the mission of the church is to love God and to love our neighbor. And they would be uh, referring to the scripture, which says that those are the two greatest commandments. And they, it'd be hard for, to argue against that. Someone else might stand up and say, well, the, I think the mission of the church is to trust God and obey him. And they might quote the 19th century hymn, trust and obey, for there is no other way. And so Really, those are essential elements as far as Christianity is concerned. And in one sense, all of those point towards worship, which is our ultimate goal as a church. But in another sense, the question comes up, is it really, is the word mission or missionary synonymous with Christian? Is there any kind of difference? And I think in one sense, there is the general mission of the church. We call the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. It was sung earlier and where Jesus commanded his disciples to go in all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And so we have in that sense this Great Commission that every disciple of Christ is uh, commanded, instructed to follow. And the command there is to make disciples, 
That's the verb. That's the action in that verse that I just quoted. The other words that surround it describe how you make the disciples. You make disciples by baptizing them and by teaching them. Those are the words which describe how you make disciples. So in one sense, we all are involved as missionaries wherever we go. But in another sense, the word missionary refers to a select group of people who are sent by a local church and have senders for a specific purpose or mission. In fact, the English term missionary, you won't find it in the Bible. It was probably used originally uh, in the 1500s. Uh, and then later in the 1700s quite frequently. But when it comes, it comes from a Latin term which is mito, and it, when translated, it, uh, it's a translation of the Greek word apostello, which is to send. And in its broadest sense, the, the term means a sent one. In fact, in our text this morning, we have uh, this word speaking about the apostles in verse 4 of chapter 14 of Acts 14. It says, but the people of the city were divided and some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles. And notice that is apostles with a small a. In scripture, you have this word apostles, sometimes speaking about the, the, the 12 apostles. And that would be with a capital A. And Paul at times would probably fit into that category of the 12 apostles who had a specific role and purpose. But here it's speaking of Barnabas and Paul with a different role and purpose. It's the ministry that the Holy Spirit had called them to, the ministry of mission. And they are on their first missionary journey in Acts chapter 14. Back in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, it speaks about their calling to that work. It says in Acts 13, verse 2, when they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so a good place for us to look at what missionary work is about, since Paul later in his life said, I have finished the race, I have fought the good fight, and he saw himself as somebody who had completed his mission. And then we see his being called to his mission in verse 13. Looking at verse 14 and what he did on his mission is a good idea for us to help keep us a focus on mission. Generally, we are all, in a sense, missionaries. Yes, that's fine. But specifically, Paul was an apostle or a sent one and specifically there are those in the church who are commissioned by the church or sent out by the church who are sent ones and we call them missionaries and we mean something different than just the fact that we're all believers and either you are somebody who is a sent one as a christian or you are somebody who is sending them and the the church in antioch was the church that sent out paul and barnabas So they were the sending ones, and Paul and Barnabas were the sent ones, or the missionaries. And in Acts chapter 13, we find them in Iconium. They had traveled from their church, which is on the northeast corner of uh, the, the Mediterranean Sea. They were in Antioch, and they traveled by boat to the island of Cyprus. They started out on the east side, and they traveled throughout the, the islands to the other side, the west side. And from there, they traveled north to what is modern-day Turkey, to a city called Perga. That's where John Mark deserted them. John Mark uh, was saying this was too tough, and he, he, he was their helper. He was with them, and he kind of uh, fled and went away from them. And, and he was right, because they were facing a real dangerous time, and, and uh, the, the next leg of the journey didn't look any better than it was. Uh, prior to this, it was going to be very difficult. They were going to travel 160 kilometers north to Antioch, Pisidia, where they would be persecuted. They were going to travel up uh, on dangerous roads, hard to travel roads. There many thieves on that road, on those on those paths that they were going to travel. It's an area known for disease like malaria. So this wasn't a very easy assignment. And uh, but but Paul and Barnabas carried on with it anyways. And then after they were done and and got. Uh, uh, persecuted in, in Antioch, Pisidia, which is a different Antioch than when they first set out. There's a couple different Antiochs. So Antioch of Syria is where they were sent out from, and they ended up in Antioch, Pisidia. And then they traveled over to a little bit wet, uh, east from there to Iconium. And there in Iconium, they entered the synagogue. The, this morning, I want to examine this passage of verses 1 through 7 of Acts 14 because I think it's going to give us a better idea of the mission of the church. 
You talk to someone and who's out there as a missionary, and some of them are all about evangelism. Someone else might say, well, I'm here to help the poor. Others who say, well, I'm here to comfort those who are hurting. Others are there to counsel those who are in sin or feed the hungry or care for the sick or stop the spread of disease like HIV AIDS or stand up for those who are abused like those who are involved in human trafficking. Those, there are some people who are there to build facilities for the worship of God. There are some people who are there to build houses for people to dwell in. There are some people who call themselves missionaries who are there to build schools for people to learn in. And it goes on and on and on and on. And again, I'm not, I'm not concerned about the term. Anyone can use the term missionary as long as they are sent out by someone else. The term mission is not a biblical term that we have exclusive rights to. I mean, it's used in the secular world. People have certain missions. They're sent in the army for a big military mission. They're missionaries. The question is, what is the focus or what should be the focus of the missionary work that we're involved in? Because the problem with saying that, well, everything Christians do is missionary work is that if everything is mission, then nothing is mission. If we don't have a clear idea of what our mission is, then it's very likely that we'll get sidetracked with other very important tasks. I don't want to discount that. Reaching out to people's physical needs is important. But if we are not focused on the actual, what should be the focus of our mission, then we are in danger. And in chapter 14 of the book of Acts, verses 1 through 7, we find five details about mission work that Paul and Barnabas were involved in that will help us as a church to understand the focus of our mission. These are five typical events for Paul and Barnabas that will help you understand your role as a church in missions and those who are missionaries, their role as ones who are sent out. The first detail or first event that we find, the first detail about their mission is their mission began with proclamation. Their mission began with proclamation. It happens in Acts chapter 14, verse 1. It happens just about everywhere that they go. Take a look at verse 1 of Acts chapter 14. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed. As they had done in the previous town of Antioch Pisidian, uh, the first place that they went to was the synagogue. This was both necessary and practical. It was necessary because the gospel is to the Jews first and also to the Greek. And so they were to go minister to the Jews. And so Paul's typical standard operation was when he came to a new city, he found the Jewish synagogue first and he went there and preached Christ as Messiah. The Messiah has come. He has died to pay for the price of those who will trust in him as Lord and master. And then from there, he would go and preach to the Gentiles. And that was practical as well, because if he had gone to the Gentiles first, it would have set up such a stumbling block to the Jews that they never would have wanted to listen to him at all about the truth. And God's message was to be to the Jews first so that they could hear because they were God's chosen people. But notice that the primary means used to communicate the gospel was speech. They spoke. It was with words. Their mission did not begin with social action. They did not say, well, we need to go in and set up a a social action platform so that people will hear our message. They went in with the words because the words and proclamation is important. When they reached Cyprus, back in Acts chapter 13, verse 5, they began to proclaim the word of God. When they got to Pisidian Antioch and asked, were asked to share in the synagogue, Acts 13, verse 16 says, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And after they left Iconium and visited other cities, in Acts chapter 14, verse 7, they actually continued to what? Preach the gospel, it says in Acts 14, 7. This is the way that God has designed for his message to be proclaimed. Through words. 
In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17, Paul says that Christ sent him to preach the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, he says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is what transforms people's hearts. People need to understand the message of the cross, and we need to proclaim it through words. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22, it says, For indeed Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's not about eloquence. It's not about speaking ability. For if that were true, then the person, the next person, the best orator in the world would have the most converts. And that's not what it's about. It's faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so as God's word is proclaimed, God's word changes hearts and opens up the eyes of our hearts to see that we are sinners before a holy God and we need to repent and trust in him. Proclaiming his word is something that brings salvation. Proclamation is essential to that. That's true for the missionary who's out there working in the foreign field just as much as is true for everyone who is a Christian and has that general mission of making disciples. I read a story about a man who worked for a large company and while he was working for this company, he, he, had, he had determined in his mind that he was going to be an example and a witness for Christ. And so he devoted himself to godly, Christ-like behavior, focusing on his own integrity, on a peace in what the Lord had given him and, and where he stood before the Lord and a contentment in all circumstances. But he decided that he wasn't going to be vocal about his faith. He was rather going to wait and let his actions speak louder than his words. And one day... After working at the company for several years, one of his co-workers came to faith in Christ. He found out that one of his co-workers is now a Christian. He hadn't been a Christian, and now he's given his life to Christ, was attending church. And, and he was so excited about this that he went up to his co-worker and he said, I heard that you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ as Lord, and you're now a Christian. And he, the man says, yes, that's, that's true. I, I've, I've seen that I have no hope uh, lost in my sins, so I, I, I ask God to forgive me, and I'm trusting in Christ, and I'm a Christian. And the man said, I'm so happy to hear that because I too am a Christian. And the recent convert looked at him and said, you are? And he said, yes. And the recent convert said to him, why, you're one of the main reasons it's taken me so long before I've come to faith. Because I've looked at you and I've looked at somebody who seems so content and so at peace and have so much integrity without Christ that I thought I could do it on my own as well. You have heard it said that action speaks louder than words. And that means that words alone don't resound very much. But actions alone can be even more damning. Preaching and proclamation is the first event that occurred on the mission trips with Barnabas and Paul. And it should encourage you to be bolder in your witness for Christ. Because proclamation is an essential part of mission. That's the first detail that we find in our passage this morning. A second detail we find in Acts chapter 14 is their mission resulted in polarization. Their mission resulted in polarization or division. When I say that people were polarized, I meant that they were divided, but not just kind of divided. They were on opposite poles of the planet, somewhere on the north and somewhere on the south pole, and nobody wanted to budge one inch in either direction. In Acts chapter 14, verse 1, it says a large number of people believed both Jews and of Greeks. So you have the believers on one side, and then you have... Uh, the unbelievers on the other side. Now, the believers had a certain kind of attitude. They're described like the believers in Pisidian Antioch, where he just left in Acts 13, verse 52. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So these people were thrilled that Paul and Barnabas had come to share the good news with them, both Jews and Greeks. And when they saw them, they were saying things like, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. Thank you for coming and sharing. They were grateful that God had sent Paul and Barnabas to proclaim the gospel because it brought them peace and life but on the other extreme there were jews who disbelieved they're described in acts 14 verse 2 take a look at it but the jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the gentiles and embittered them against the brethren 
Verse 4 says, But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some sided with the apostles. Can you imagine living in a city where because of the message you proclaimed, everybody either loved you and appreciated you with great joy and gladness, or they hated you and despised you and there was no middle ground? As one preacher described Paul, he said, Paul was walked into a room and it was either duck or pucker. He had no other choice. He was either going to get kissed and hugged and loved or he was going to get something thrown at him. Now, some people might ask, well, how does that encourage me to be bolder in my witness for Christ? It does in a couple of different ways. First of all, for those of you who are hated and despised because of your stand for truth and your proclamation of the truth, it should comfort you to know that that goes hand in hand with the pattern of proclamation in mission. But for those of us who experience times where nobody really objects to any message we proclaim, it should tell us that perhaps our message isn't clear enough. Because it is a message that divides. How can you not divide someone when you tell them they have no hope in, for all of eternity without Jesus Christ? The gospel of Jesus Christ says that God is holy and that he is alone is worthy to be praised and that he is the creator of all things and that he is majestic and that he is perfect. But we are all sinners. And because of our sin, we have no, we've been severed from a relationship with him and we have no hope without him. We are people who love the darkness. We don't want our, we love our sin so much that we don't want his light to expose it. And so we, we naturally have an inclination to hide from his light. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He sent his son to die on the cross so that those who would repent and trust in the work of the cross because Christ was perfect. He never sinned. Therefore, he never had to die because the wages of sin is death. And so Christ never sinned. Therefore, he never had to die. Yet he allowed himself to be crucified on a cross to pay as a substitute for the sins of those who would trust in him. This is the good news that if you repent and trust in him, you will be washed and cleansed of your sin so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Christ's righteousness because your sin has been taken out of your account and credited to Christ where he paid for it on the cross. And Christ's righteousness has been credited to your account. The film of your life has been erased. And in its place, the film that is displayed before the all of universe is the film of Jesus Christ. That is the good news. Christ rose from the grave, conquering death. Not, and he's not the only one. He's called the first fruits. And so there will be many more to follow. And everyone who repents and trusts in him will live for eternity, will rise from the grave, and will be in the presence of God Almighty, being so enamored by his presence, there will be nothing that you would rather do for all eternity than just worship him. That is good news for those who believe, but it is bad news for those who do not. Because those who do not believe will be condemned to hell for all eternity. They will remain in their sin. And there is no other way of salvation according to Acts 4.12. The message we proclaim should be clear enough that people would be divided over it. And that's not so easy to do nowadays because our society is geared and trained and conditioned to not care about truth our society trains us and conditions us to be concerned with acceptance but truth doesn't matter when I was in seminary, I worked as a youth pastor in a church. I had a group of junior hires, and there was one boy who came and visited our youth group and became a member of our youth group. His name was Andy, and he would come on his own, on his, on his own steam even. He had a skateboard, so he had wheels. He was mobile. He would come to the church, and 
On one occasion, I gave him a ride home, and uh, he invited me to come in to meet his parents. I was quite eager to do this since they didn't attend our church. I wanted to meet them, and, and I shook their hands, and they said, we are so thrilled that our son, Andy, is in your youth group because we are glad to hear that he's learning about the Bible and about Christianity. Well, this was good. I was encouraged by this. It seemed like a good uh, conversation until they said, but we want you to know that we want our son Andy to visit all different faiths and religions and that he can learn about all those different ways to God so that he can pick and choose and make his own religion. And I said, well, this sounds, you know, uh, kind of impossible to me, to be quite frank, because, you know, I'm a, Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. So either Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father, and none of those other ways can be the way, or Jesus Christ is not the way to the Father because he's a liar and he was wrong. So it seemed like, how could Christianity be one of many ways to God? And they said to me, something that you may have heard in the past, they said, well... That might be true for you, but not necessarily true for us. Now, I had recently watched a video series on apologetics, and I had heard a mathematical equation. And so I thought, well, let me try this. I mean, I said to them, you know what? I'm confused again. Because it sounds to me like what you're saying is that I could say one plus one equals two, and that would be true for me. And you could say two plus two equals two. And that could be true for you. And somehow we could both be right. And they looked at each other and they looked at me and they said, that is exactly what we believe. We've never heard it explained so well. (laughs) That's the society we live in. But the sad truth about that is that there are absolutes and the Bible does make absolute statements. And Jesus Christ himself said in John 8 verse 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so we need to proclaim the message of good news in such a way that people understand there is a detrimental ramification for you if you do not trust in him. And if that polarizes you from me, I'm willing to risk that because I care enough about you that you should know the truth. When we look at the disciples, when we look at the apostles like Barnabas and Paul who were sent out ones, their mission began with proclamation. Their mission resulted in polarization. A third detail about their mission. Their mission involved the planting of churches. Their mission involved the planting of churches. Take a look at verse Three. It says in verse 3 of Acts chapter 14, Therefore they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. The word therefore, some versions say so at the beginning of verse 3, indicates that in spite of the fact, get this, in spite of the fact that there were those in verse 2 who were stirring up animosity against them, Therefore, they remained a long time there. In other words, since there is such opposition, we better stay here and ground these people in the truth. Now, we know that they got bolder because they said that they uh, were with reliance upon the Lord in the New American Standard. The NIV says they were for the Lord or in the Lord. The Lord's hand was upon them. And so they were able to be even bolder. And the reason they stayed longer was to establish a church. You say, I don't see that in verse 3. It's there. It's actually over in verse 23. Take a look at chapter 14, verses 21 through 23. Because this is after they've left Iconium, and now they're speaking about that past visit. So we fast forward and we see what did they say about Iconium, and they're going to go back and visit because the, the pattern was they traveled and they, they, were, they preached the gospel until they divided people so much that people threw rocks at them and then they moved on to the next place. And then when they got down to the end of the line, they decided, let's go back and visit all those places where people threw rocks at us. And in Acts chapter 14, verse 21, take a look at it. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. 
So Iconium is where we're at in the beginning of chapter 14. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. What did they do? They established churches. This is important. This is important because part of their mission involved establishing healthy churches. And this is important because if you're involved in mission work in an area where there's not a healthy church, you're not following the pattern of mission. Now, I I originally went to Malawi in 1997. And I went there. I had an opportunity to take over. I was uh, newly graduated from seminary. And I had an opportunity to go there and take over for a missionary who was going to be gone for a year. And I could jump right into his shoes. Not literally, but, you know, I was there on the ground doing what he was doing and keeping his ministries going so he could come back and take it back over again. So I was a substitute teacher missionary. And so I went in there to Malawi and I was living the dream because I had always wanted to be a real bush missionary in deepest, darkest Africa. And uh, I was miles away from civilization. I was the only missionary around. I was surrounded by Africans. There were 26 Bible college students on the property and I was teaching them the Bible. There were, uh, uh, we had 100 acres where we had um, growing crops and we had 400 chickens and 50 goats and we were teaching them, you know, how to, how to, uh, raise animals as a way of, you know, providing for yourself. We were digging a well. So to provide running water, when I first got there, uh, there was no running water. And so, uh, we were right on the lake, Lake Malawi takes up a third of the country and we were right on Lake Malawi. And I was going with a bucket, a plastic bucket and dipping it in the water. And there are hippos and crocs right there where I'm, where I'm getting the water out. And I thought, this is great. I'm I mean, God's creatures are right here where I'm getting the water. And then I noticed that God's creatures were actually in the water as well. Some smaller God's creatures that you couldn't see with your eyes. So I boiled them to get rid of those God's creatures and then drink the water. And uh, then I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, we we're putting in electricity. We were, we we're building an orphanage. We we're doing just about everything you can imagine a missionary would be doing. We had a camp with 240 Malawian kids who came to our camp, and many of them were coming to Christ. It was exciting. But the local church was not there. In fact, the churches that I visited in the area were were with pastors who had no training and did not feel confident in the word, and often they, 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 they didn't expose the word. You were glad if you got out of there and there was just no heresy. But even in a, a time where they're, they're, they read a Bible and they talk about something completely different, which at worst, it leads to heresy. At best, they're training their people not to rely on the Bible, but on them as the authority. And so my heart went out and I thought, who's going to disciple these people who are coming to Christ? And that's when I really felt compelled. I need to go get involved in church ministry and get experience as a pastor. I had never been a pastor, but I said, I've got to go get pastoral experience so that if the Lord ever brought me back to a place like Malawi, I could help train pastors and strengthen the church. Because sometimes you're involved in missionary work and there's no strong local church and you're actually competing with the church rather than helping a church. So my heart went out for that church, and I think it's important for us to keep in mind that church planting, or if there's a church that's already there that's good, church strengthening is an important part of missionary work. There's a church I know of uh, that's doing a work in Africa. Uh, It's called uh, Souls for Souls, and they have what's called Barefoot Sunday. And uh, they have a, a, a time, it's one Sunday a year, where everybody who comes to their church, quite a large church, they all come and everybody walks onto stage and takes off their shoes and leaves barefoot. And they tie all the shoes together and they ship them to Africa to give them to people. Because there's, uh, there's 20% of the world's population doesn't have shoes. And, you know, I mean, Americans typically have a lot of shoes, right? Some of you are more convicted than others about that. I urge you husbands not to give the elbow right now to think about your own shoe collection. But uh, so 
so they have souls for souls. Do you get it? That's the idea. Shoe souls for, yeah, okay. So then they, they, um, they, they box them up. They ship them to Africa. And many times the shoes are distributed indiscriminately. There's no church association. There's no, uh, you, know, you know, here's the gospel. It's just, hey, do you want some shoes? God bless you. Move on. Some guys have motorcycles with their backs are just full of shoes. And they're just going out to villages handing out shoes to people. They're quite popular, those people who do that. But uh, now, don't get me wrong. Is it wrong to give shoes to people who don't have it? By no means. Is this a good thing for Christians to do? I believe it is. Is this something that we should be involved in? Maybe. You know, it depends, I guess, how many shoes you have and how much a heart you have for people who don't have shoes. You have freedom to do that. I think they have freedom to do that. However, let that not be confused with the mission of the church. Because the mission of the church is involved in proclamation, it's involved in polarization, and it's involved in planting churches or working with existing churches that are solid. That is the mission of the church. That's what we need to keep focused on, making disciples using the institution that God established. And if we get to the point where we're doing only social action, that the history has shown us that the result is when the church loses its mission, it loses its doctrine, it loses its passion, and liberalism rises up and the, 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 the word of God and the worship of God diminishes. We've seen that in the United States through the social gospel. Last night at the missions conference, I talked about the student volunteer movement, which is the largest missionary movement ever in the United States with 20,000 missionaries going out at one time. And it quickly died because it got totally diverted on social action. I want you to point out also, though, in verse three of Acts chapter 14, the second part of the verse, it says that they had reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done in their hands. Now, some people come to that and they say, you see their hands. This is the hand part of it. And they say they're doing social action. They're helping people's physical needs. All right. Now, I've already said that there's nothing wrong with helping people's physical needs. And the Bible speaks about ministering to people's physical needs. I mean, in James 127, it says pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and father is this to visit orphans and widows in distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Obviously it is good and right. There are many passages that speak about reaching out to people's physical needs. And I, I think that's great. I think we should do that. But this passage in Acts chapter 14 is not one saying that part of the mission is physical needs. Here, it's confirmation of the word that's going on. Take a look at verse 3. Their reliance upon the Lord, and the Lord is testifying to what? To the word of his grace. He's confirming the word spoken, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. A similar truth is taught in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where it says, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Here's what we see in the early church. In the early church, they didn't have this book. So uh, an apostle would come to a town and he would preach the gospel and oftentimes signs and wonders and miraculous healings would take place as confirmation that this person was speaking what God had spoken, that he wasn't some charlatan coming through with a different message. We live in a different era. I come to you today and I preach this book to you and I, 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 I would love to be able to confirm it with signs and wonders. I've always wanted the one that Moses had where you could take your hand and, and, and it's good and you slip it in your cloak and you pull it out it's full of leprosy and then you put it back in and now it's good again. I thought that's pretty cool. I mean, that'd be a good one to have. You'd stand at the door, you shake my hand. Oh, wait, leprosy. Yes, you see, it was true, you know, but that's not the way God has chosen to confirm his word now. He's completed his canon. We have a scripture that's sufficient. And if you want to know whether what I'm teaching is true to God's word, how are you going to check it? With God's word. 
And so we don't have the same need for confirmation that they had then. What was going on then was surely acts of mercy. Surely it met towards people's physical needs. But it was to confirm the word spoken. And what happens when you establish good, healthy churches in every community around the world is that believers, because they're so overwhelmed with God's goodness towards them and because they have such a love for the neighbors around them because God has changed their heart, they will naturally reach out with compassion and minister to people's physical needs. It will happen naturally. But if we go in and, and shoot for people's physical needs without the church there, we're doing something different than the mission of the church. I hope you're hearing me on this. In no way do I think ministering to physical needs is wrong. I would encourage you, do more of it. But let's keep our mission focused so that we're not neglecting the proclamation of the word. We have a fourth detail in our passage that will help us understand our mission, and that is the mission often results in persecution. In persecution. Look at verse 5. It says, And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they became aware of it. Now, how they became aware of it, we're not sure. Maybe those in Iconium were just really bad with their rocks and they didn't have good aim. And they were going by their heads and Paul and Barnabas said, I'm I'm becoming aware that people are going to want to persecute us. (laughs) We're not sure. Maybe they heard about it. It's probably more likely. But... They fled. They carried on. That was a perse- there was persecution there. And they went. In fact, what we find out in chapter 14, verse 17, is that uh, those from Iconium actually caught up with Paul when he was at the next town, when he's in Lystra. Look at verse 17. And yet, sorry, verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Remember, they already left there. Now in verse 19, they came, the Jews followed, and they having won over the crowds, they stoned Peter and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Either the Jews from Iconium became much better with their rocks, or the ones from Antioch were the dead ringers. And whatever the case, they beat Paul and Barnabas so bad that Paul was thought that he was dead, and so they left him. And Paul realized that persecution was part, suffering was part, of being a believer. And from there, he decided to move on, to move on, to carry on. He said, well, this is obviously time for me to move on and proclaim the word somewhere else, which brings us to the final common event or the final detail we learn about their mission. Not only proclaiming, not only polarizing, not only planting and not only persecution, but there's progressing or progression. The fifth detail or the fifth uh, measure that we have here is progression. They progressed to another place in verses 6 and 7. Acts 14, verse 6 says, They became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region, and there they continued to preach the gospel. If for nothing else, this is an encouragement, because when they, re- when they experienced trials, that didn't stop them from preaching. It just changed sometimes where they were going to preach. And we need to be about proclamation. God may be allowing you to experience trials at this stage of your life. And it may be something that he may use to help you to go somewhere else to proclaim. Uh, It may just be something for you to endure. It's hard to tell in these situations. When we were in South Africa, our family experienced three very severe trials within a short period of one another. The first one, I I was careless and I had left the door open and my daughter followed me out as I was going to the car and she walked behind the car. She was two years old and I backed up and knocked her over with the back bumper and she went underneath the first set of axles and got wedged between underneath the car and she survived and she's fine and and she didn't have any broken bones and and God was really, I mean, it 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 was a traumatic time and we saw his hand upon her and his grace in a huge way, but it just, it just broke me. It just, I, I cried every day for a couple of weeks. And as we were getting over that, uh, a few months later, some, some men in Johannesburg, we were living in Johannesburg, South Africa, they followed my wife home from the store, and they broke into our home, 
and they uh, held her up and the kids up at gunpoint, and I walked in on this, and then they threatened to shoot me. They threatened to kill our kids, and uh, they, they, they stole her wedding ring, and they, they got spooked because I had ran away, and they weren't sure what was going on, but that was a big trial for us, real sense of violation. And there's, there, a number of people in our church had experienced the same thing. It's common there to go through those kind of trials. A couple of, uh, a few months later in, the, in our church, my father-in-law, my wife's parents were attending the church and after church we were going to go visit them. And uh, when we were, we, we, we called them to see if we could come over and visit and they, uh, the, her, her mom answered the phone and said, your dad's just been shot. And coming home from church, he was pulling into the driveway and some guy came up to him with a gun and said, give me the car and ended up shooting him twice. And we rushed over there and I ended up leaving my, my mother-in-law and my wife and my kids on the side of the road. And, and my, my father-in-law took his bloody body and put it in the back of the car and rushed him to the hospital. And they sewed him up and he survived. But I mean, these were big trials for us. And it got to the point where my wife said, you know, I think maybe God might be weaning my heart from my love of South Africa. She said, I've always said I've been willing to go somewhere else, but I never really wanted to go anywhere else. Where else do you think in the world the Lord would have us minister? And I said, Malawi. Because that's where I'd been and I'd seen the need. And now I had been in a, pa- a pastor for eight years. And I thought I could go back and I could help train pastors. So that's where my heart was. And God opened the door for us to go to Malawi. And we, 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 we transitioned there in 2007. But wherever we go, whether he takes us to Malawi, whether he brings us back here to the States, whatever it is, we're going to be about proclaiming the gospel because that is our mission. Whether generally as a member of the body of Christ or whether specifically as one who is sent out from this congregation. And my prayer is that you will be a church that will continue to partner with sent out ones who will be focused on the mission and that you will be focused on the mission generally and specifically as you partner with them. Where the mission of the church fails, liberalism flourishes and true worship dies. John Piper said it this way. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. And he's right. Someday, as we thought about before we'll all be fallen before the throne being so enamored with the glories of heaven and of christ that there'll be nothing more that will occupy our minds except for the thought of jesus christ is lord but until that day missions and missionaries are necessary in order for us to keep a focus on what glorifies god the most and that others can be brought in to worship him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together in your word. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of being able to look at this first century account of what early mission work was all about. Help us, Father, to have a higher view of your church and its role here in Burbank and throughout the world. Help us, Father, to have a greater commitment to our local church, the place where the Great Commission is fulfilled through baptism and disciple-making. Father, help us to be bold in our witness to the lost, that even if it means polarizing others, Lord, may your name be exalted, and may we not be thinking about our own preservation, but we're thinking about your magnification. Help us, Father, to keep the right focus. And though it's important to reach out to people's physical needs, may that never be at the expense of their spiritual needs. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.